The second reading is from Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him <clears throat> as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, <clears throat> all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from the, their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways.
Thanks, Sam. Sharon's already prayed with regard to hearing the word, but let's pray again um, that God's spirit will be uh, moving in us as we respond to what he has to say. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, as we reflect a bit more on this part of your word, you will fill us with your spirit that we may respond in trust, uh, that you will produce in us uh, hearts that are ready to acknowledge as true what you have to say to us, and that are also ready to respond um, in obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do Christians have to offer? What do Christians have to offer to the world around us, to the people around us, and I guess particularly to people who might be in need? You know, there are plenty of voices in our society that would want to answer that question by saying absolutely nothing. Christians have nothing to offer, and... They're working pretty hard to convince other people of that as well. They want to squeeze Christianity into the margins and perhaps squeeze us out altogether. Uh, a recent example of this that we saw was in the last census that happened in Australia. The Atheist Foundation ran a campaign to try and convince as many people as possible to tick no religion on their census responses. And their goal in that was so that they could have some data where they could point to and say, look, see, Australia is not religious. And therefore, religion and talking about religion should be removed from our society. We need to get rid of that. They want to make religion in general, and I think it's fair to say Christianity in particular, seem increasingly irrelevant, unhelpful, and unnecessary. And I suspect that one of our problems is that maybe we've begun to believe their marketing about ourselves. And so we find ourselves asking, what do we have to offer? And maybe even, what do we have to benefit for ourselves in the message of Jesus? What does Christianity have to offer for ourselves and for people around us? Well, in this passage in Acts that we've just read, Peter and John, the apostles, they are confronted by someone in need. And they do not have what that person wants. They don't have it. But what they do have, it turns out, is far, far better. Let's have a look at how it goes. The passage begins, as you heard, with Peter and John going up to the temple to pray, as they do, it seems, every day. But on this particular day, they meet a man, and there is no question that this is a man who is in need. He's been crippled from birth, and so he'd never walked a day in his life. And because he couldn't walk, he couldn't provide for himself. You know, they had no social welfare, no disability pension, no NDIS, so every day he was carried to the temple courts, to the gate there, and he had to beg from people who went. This was a guy with very real and practical needs. And, you know, we've had 2,000 years of medical advances since that day, and yet still we have these same kinds of problems in our world. This is a very real reality of life still. And it was very much a reality for this man that Peter and John met that day at the temple gate that was called Beautiful. And I wonder, in mentioning the name of the temple gate Beautiful there, we're meant to see something of an irony, that outside a gate that is called Beautiful, there is a scene that is far from beautiful. Not the man himself, but the situation that he is in. He's forced to beg for survival. And God had commanded his people about this sort of thing. 
No one should have been in this situation. If you look back in Deuteronomy 15, God says to his people that they should provide for each other so there should be no needy person among you. But here, outside the the temple that symbolised God's very presence among them, at the gate called Beautiful, there was an ugly scene. A poor, crippled man is being forced to beg for survival. And this, as I said, is where Peter and John enter the scene. And as we read this, I think we can't help but wonder, what are they going to do for this guy? What are they going to provide for this guy? Particularly if we remember that the verses directly before what we're reading, in verse 45 particularly, we've seen this new Christian community that is forming, we've seen them behaving in exactly the kind of way that God wants them to. They're selling their possessions to provide for people in need, so there were no needy people among them. That's how well the Christians were caring for each other. And so what will Peter and John provide for this man? He's asked them for money in verse 3. Is this an opportunity for the Christian community to begin to bless the people around them with social welfare? And Peter's first words are silver and gold, which sounds promising, except that he follows that with, I do not have, which you know almost sounds cruel. It's like saying, ice cream for dessert is not happening tonight. <laughs> you know, raise the expectations and then dash them. Peter doesn't have what these guys are asking for. But that doesn't mean he has nothing to offer them. Silver or gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. And what he has to offer them is not second best or third best. This is not the bronze medal after silver and gold. What he has to offer this man is far better. It's a gift that is so good, it's more than that the guy could have even hoped for or asked for. Have a look in verse 6. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. I mean, that wasn't even on this guy's wish list because it was beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, that belongs in the realm of dreams and fantasy. But that's what Peter offers. And the result was instant. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Your nerves that had been severed rejoined. Muscles that were withered and wasted away became strong. Bones and joints that were dislocated and deformed became secure and stable. And he jumped to his feet and walked. In fact, he didn't just walk, he leaped. This was nothing less than an instant and miraculous healing of a man who had been crippled his whole life. And we hear later on that he was over 40 years old. 40 years unable to walk now healed in an instant. Peter and John had no money to give, but in the name of Jesus Christ, they had something even better. This was a miraculous, life-changing moment. And as you see, the miracle wasn't lost on the crowd. They recognised this man as the, the crippled beggar who used to beg at that gate that they'd seen every day, and they came running. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. This is an event that begs an explanation. And we're going to hear Peter's explanation in a moment. But before that, I want to give us a bit of a sneak preview from the Old Testament of what's going on here, because the Old Testament does speak, does does show us a background of what's going on here. And the clue is in Isaiah 35. You might like to read it later on, Isaiah 35. 
Isaiah paints a picture of the messianic age, the age when God's king, the Messiah, would come, and it's a picture of a world that really is beautiful, of a great restoration that God would bring across every aspect of life, and the natural world, our physical lives, our social lives, our spiritual lives, and it speaks in the language of a barren desert blooming with flowers and bubbling with springs and as you read it you can almost smell the freshness in peter's speech he calls it times of refreshing it's a lovely image a time of rest of refreshing of beauty and it's not just the physical environment that is beautiful in that picture it's a refreshing that will be all-encompassing there'll be justice for wrongs salvation for the oppressed there'll be healing for the sick There'll be no wicked people, no danger, no fear. There'll be holiness and righteousness, joy and gladness. It is really a beautiful image. And right in the middle of the kind of the picture that Isaiah points for us, we discover what will happen for the lame man, the man who cannot walk. In verse 6 of Isaiah's picture, he says this, Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the mute tongue shout for joy. This is exactly what's happening at that temple gate in front of all those people who were there that day. Temple gate called beautiful is really witnessing a scene of beauty. This is a sign that the time of restoration and refreshing is beginning. This lame man is getting a very real taste of that. It's a demonstration that those times at the messianic age has begun in Jesus. So let's return now to the crowd that is kind of flocking around Peter and John and this no longer crippled man. Because it's one thing to have a demonstration of this messianic age, but it's another thing for the people there to recognise that that's what's going on. See, the crowd is gathering and Peter can see that they're in danger of missing the point. They're marvelling at the man who's been healed. They're staring in amazement at Peter and John. But that's not what's meant to happen. Peter and John are not meant to be the focus of their amazement. So Peter wants to make sure that they don't confuse the sign with the thing that the sign points to. Because, you know, that's that's the whole idea of a sign, right? It's meant to point to something else. It's meant to point to the real thing. It reminds me of when my family goes on holidays. We usually go up or down the coast. And you might notice as you travel up and down the coast, sometimes you see big billboards of the destinations that you're heading to, you know, Port Macquarie, Molly Mook, Jarvis Bay, wherever it might be. And, And often those signs have a beautiful picture, right, of what you can expect when you get there. You know, beautiful sunny beaches, crystal clear waters. But how crazy would it be if we're driving along and we get to that sign and we stop? We go, there it is, kids, Port Macquarie. Isn't it beautiful? I park the car and unpack and get out the beach chairs and say, enjoy the view for two weeks of looking at a billboard of Port Macquarie. I mean, that'd be crazy, wouldn't it? That's just the sign. We know that. And it's the same with this sign. Peter wants to make sure that they don't just stop at the sign, but that they recognise what the sign points to. And so what Peter goes on to tell them is that this healing of the crippled man is just a sign. It's just a taste. It's just the beginning of the blessings that come through Jesus. 
And so have a look at what he offers them in the name of Jesus in verse 19. He says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Sins wiped out, forgiveness of sins, and times of refreshing, that picture of Isaiah, that beautiful refreshment. That's what Jesus has to offer. That's what Peter offers them in the name of Jesus. And I wonder if this is something that we really value for ourselves and for others so that we're actually keen to share it with other people. So think about it. I mean, sin's wiped out, sin's forgiven. In my experience, I think most people, and I include myself in this, can be fairly inconsistent when we think about the significance and the permanence of our offences, of our wrongdoings. You know, sometimes we think that they should be easily wiped out, easily forgiven, like they've been written in a whiteboard marker and just easy to wipe away. Other times, though, we can barely forgive ourselves or other people who have wronged us, as if what they have done or what we have done is written in a permanent marker, just never coming off. I remember a while ago seeing a, an advertisement for uh, domestic violence, against domestic violence, that kind of speaks to this. It was very powerful. It, it tried to convey the stain of guilt that domestic violence leaves on the person who does it, on the perpetrator. And it talked about that stain of guilt as being written on them, not with a whiteboard marker, not with a permanent marker, but with a tattoo, you know, permanently there, cannot be removed. And I think that's a fairly good representation of not just domestic violence, but the, the stain of all sin, the guilt of all sin. It marks us permanently like a tattoo. Of course, tattoos can be removed these days. But it's painful, right? I remember hearing a, an actor talk about getting his tattoos removed. I think it was Mark Wahlberg. And he talked about how he had to have layer upon layer of skin burned away, session after session, and how painful it was before the stain of the ink would even begin to fade. And the point that Peter is making here when he says your sins can be wiped out is not that it's easy for them to be wiped out, but that the pain of their removal has been borne by someone else. The pain has been borne by another. That's what he says in verse 18. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer so that your sins may be wiped out. This is not a light promise that Peter makes here, but it is a good one, and it is a certain one. The same power that healed that crippled man declares forgiveness of sin, sins wiped out in the name of Jesus. And the second thing that he declares is that times of refreshing will come. The time of refreshing from God has begun. And the crippled man who was there standing and walking and leaping that day was evidence of that. That's the kind of refreshing and restoration that God has promised, the lame leaping for joy, a physical restoration that comes from a spiritual restoration to God. That's what Jesus offers. It's that beautiful scene again from Isaiah 35, deserts and wastelands blooming with flowers and bubbling with springs. 
complete restoration in our physical and our social and our spiritual lives, no wickedness, no danger, no fear. I mean, that sounds refreshing, doesn't it? Isn't that the kind of life that we want, that we long for? And this lame man leaping about the temple courts is a sign that that time has begun. That kind of that man's healing was like one flower blooming in the desert. He was a sign that there was more to come, but not just yet. You see, Peter goes on to say that we have to wait for the complete restoration of everything when Jesus returns. Have a look from verse 20 and 21, or the end of verse 19, really. He says that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must receive him, sorry, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. You see, this part of God's blessing is something that we have to wait for. And I wonder again if this is where perhaps we don't really appreciate the goodness of what Jesus has to offer because we can't see it yet, because we don't fully experience it yet, because we do have to wait for it. You know, I'd rather have something that I can hold and have and see now. I mean, every other aspect of our lives is geared towards instant gratification, right? You know, we can watch whatever we want, whenever we want it, you know, binge watch on Netflix or whatever. We can buy what we want now and pay for it later with afterpay. We have trouble valuing, I think, what we have to wait for and what we can't see and hold and touch. But that doesn't make it any less real or any less good. This restoration of all things will come, just as it came for that crippled man that day. There will be an end to sickness and disease, an end to suffering and pain, an end to heartache and broken relationships. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So what do we have to offer for ourselves and for others? So much, I reckon, of our own struggles in the Christian life and our reluctance to share it with others comes from the fact, maybe, that we just don't really value and see and appreciate what it is that we have in Jesus. And, and I speak for myself as much as any of us here. But we do have something glorious to offer for ourselves and for others. Sins wiped out now, complete forgiveness now, and the promise of this restoration and refreshing when Jesus returns. And I wonder if we're as clear about that as Peter was. I mean, God had given Peter the miraculous ability to heal. But he didn't say, okay, come on, everyone, line up. Who's next? Let's, let's do this. No, he pointed them to the heart of the blessing, turning back to God for complete forgiveness and the promise of restoration through Jesus. And I wonder if you really value that for yourself amidst all the other problems that, that you do have, the real problems that you have in life. And I wonder if you really value that for others, that you're willing to share it with them. Now, we may not always have what people are asking for, but we do have what they really need. And that's what we can offer them and for ourselves in the name of Jesus. 
Let me finish, as the Bible does really, with the New Testament picture of that Old Testament image that Isaiah points for us. It's at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with the people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? Let's pray that we will see and hold on to and trust that image. Heavenly Father, the promises that you've made to us are clearly remarkable and yet somehow they diminish in our eyes and maybe in the eyes of our hearts the things that we long for. So we do ask, Father, that you will open the eyes of our hearts to know the wonderful goodness of what you have promised us in Jesus, that we cherish it, that we value it, that we live for it, and that we want to share it with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.